Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is me, your host, Kyle Ritchie, and I am glad to welcome you back to the Planet Comedy Podcast. Obviously, as I said, I'm your host, comedian, internet personality, owner, operator, the the general controller of the Planet Comedy Podcast and Planet Comedy Productions. We've got lots of podcasts here, lots of videos, but we're not talking about that right now. We're going to get right into things. First things first, we're going to do a new segment here where we're going to cover some news from last week, guys. We're going to, before we jump right into our big topic of the day, uh, what happened last week? Well, what happened last week was uh, this weekend, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, two days ago, Jake Paul and Tommy Fury finally fought each other after uh, what feels like decades, ages, if you will, of lead up. Former YouTuber turned celebrity slash professional boxer Jake Paul uh, boxed Tommy Fury. For those who don't know who Tommy Fury is, he was on a season of I believe Love Island. I want to say Love Island in the UK. He is the brother of boxing heavyweight champion Tyson Fury. And he himself is kind of a celebrity slash pro boxer. He's got a little more experience. And a little more actual boxing pedigree than someone like Jake Paul. But it, it's a very stylistically similar matchup. Both guys have about the same experience. Both guys have about the same amount of name recognition. It was a smart move for them to fight each other. At least business-wise. Uh, turned out not to be smart for Jake in the competition things. Because in kind of a shock, uh, Tommy Fury... Picks up the win, a decision win. In my opinion, it should have been a, it shouldn't have been a split decision. It should have been, uh, uh, you know, God, what is it called? But it shouldn't have been a split decision. All the judges should have agreed. The fact that one judge saw Jake winning the fight, Jake. So most of the fight was kind of dominated by Tommy. There wasn't a whole lot of action. Jake was looking for the big power punches. Jake was looking to land a big right hand and put Tommy away, and. Tommy was kind of just using his jab and using his boxing skills to stay away from Jake's big right hands and keep himself moving and keep himself active. And he landed double Jake's punches. I mean, he just had way more output than Jake. He doubled him in punches, doubled him in power punches. He was way more accurate. Jake did get a knockdown. Now, some people are unsure if it was an actual knockdown or if Tommy just kind of slipped. (laughs) Because it does look like when you watch it back that maybe Tommy just kind of falls on his ass and he's not actually hurt. But regardless, Tom, uh, Jake did get a knockdown in the eighth round. And Jake Paul claims that he doesn't agree with the decision, but I don't. I just don't see any way anyone can realistically say Jake won that fight. I mean, I guess you could say he did more damage, but I, I don't even know that I agree with that. I think Tommy had a majority of the of the action in this fight he did not only a lot of damage but just i wouldn't say a lot of damage but tommy just connected with way more shots than jake ever did and that was the problem is that jake couldn't connect with the big bombs that he'd been connected on in these other fights that he's been in with guys like ben Askren and you know tyson not tyson fury um but tyrone woodley or Tyron Woodley, and you know, guys like that, it's it's hard to connect with those big power punches when you have a guy who does know his way around a boxing ring, and the fight kind of went how I expected it to go. I, I always felt like if Jake was going to beat Tommy, it was going to be because he was going to catch him with a, a, a big shot, and he was going to put him to sleep, but 
if it went the distance, it favored Tommy Fury because Tommy has, unlike any of Jake's opponents, I don't care what anyone says, actual factual boxing experience, and he knows how to handle himself in the ring, and he knows how to, you know, you know, shift punches away and move and dodge and use a jab and keep distance and. Tommy did all that, and Jake really didn't have an answer for it. it as much as I hate to say, it, as entertaining as Jake's been, it, it, we all kind of knew this was coming. It always felt like it was inevitable that Jake was going to end up boxing someone who was just flat better at boxing than him. And it turns out it's Tommy Fury. It turns out Tommy Fury's decent at this. And neither of these guys are like world championship material boxers. I would say they're both this you know this was a very highly publicized fight between what is essentially two amateurs. But regardless, Jake now has to move on probably for a rematch and I think if Jake loses again this is all probably done. That's my opinion on what's what's next cuz people are going to ask what's next for Jake Paul. What's next for both these guys is a rematch. Jake has a rematch clause in the contract and it we all knew I mean unless he just got absolutely, you know, sent to like the shadow realm that he was probably going to ask for a rematch if he lost i mean we always knew that was coming it's funny because jake never gives any of the guys he fought rematches but except for woodley he did give woodley a rematch and then he knocked him out i don't think that's how this is going to go here I, I really think there's a good chance tommy fury beats him again i don't know that jake can catch him in terms of skill now, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe Jake can develop a, a good jab, and, you know, because it really, if Jake can develop a good jab and put more out, he's going to be a problem for Tommy, but the problem is he just wasn't doing enough. He wasn't doing anything. He was just letting Tommy basically do whatever he wanted, and Tommy put out a lot of output, landed a lot of shots. None of them were big shots. I hurt him, but that won him the fight. But moving off of, you know, Tommy Fury and Jake Paul... Uh, Katie Hobbs, the governor for Arizona, has been accused multiple times of, this is something I wanted to cover because I think it's funny, being partners with the Sinaloa cartel. For those who don't know what the Sinaloa cartel is, the Mexican drug cartel that used to be led by El Chapo, Joaquin Guzman, for those, you know, unaware, for the uninitiated, for uh, bribing high-ranking Arizona officials to rig the 2020 elections. So the, the purpose behind this, the idea behind this conspiracy is that Democrats uh, support more open border policies, which I would say is, is accurate. I would say that's an accurate description that the people on the left are more supportive of more lenient border policy than the conservatives are. But the idea behind that is that the cartels want the democrats to win because it makes it easier for them to ship drugs across the border which is ridiculous uh it really hasn't mattered who the president was when ronald reagan was the president by the for for those who don't know that was when pablo escobar was active and they were just shipping mountains of cocaine into the country so it really really doesn't seem to matter who the president of the united states is or where they lean there's always drugs coming into this country because there's a high demand for them but regardless, this is a super fun thing that if it can be proven uh, would be one of the wildest things we've ever seen in the history of this country in terms of like corruption because this would be a, a criminal organization working with politicians, which, you know, has never happened before. Wink, wink. 
But Hobbs claims that the Attorney General in Arizona, I can't remember his name, but that he has documents that basically prove this isn't true and he's withholding them in order to make her look more guilty and, you know, for the upcoming elections, I would say, here coming in 2024, which, if true, is is a shrewd move by the Attorney General, who I would assume is an opposing politician in some way. Hobbs has requested an ethics review from the Arizona State Bar and, you know, to basically look into this Attorney General and see if her claims are correct. And to me, it seems like if she's willing to take it this high, that she really, really believe that she's either innocent or she is really, really willing to go to the mat for her reputation. Twitter has exploded over this, obviously. Everyone and their grandmother uh, over the last weekend was was like talking about this, it felt like. was talking about the fact that they felt like the election was stolen. And I really hate this, that that's what it's brought back into, into the, the, you know, the national conversation is the idea of the 2020 election being stolen. Because everywhere there's been evidence of this, it's been disproven. Like, it's just the truth. Like, that's not me giving an opinion. I, if you have genuine evidence of the election being taken away from Donald Trump, I will listen to you. I am not a, a partisan person like that. I'm always intrigued to listen to the wild shit the government does. However, everywhere, every single instance where people has claimed that this happened, every single one has been disproven. All of the lawsuits failed. All of the everything, everything that has anything to do with the idea of the 2020 election being stolen from Donald Trump has been proven conceivably false. And I would believe that here, despite the fact that all of conservative Twitter seems to be convinced that this is true. But they're convinced that everything is true. Everything that you can say bad about the left is true to them. And I think that's hilarious. And part of the reason I wanted to bring this story up is it shows to me that you guys remember when Trump won in 2016 and and the, the left, people on the left freaked out. Like there were people screaming and crying in the streets and shit. And it was super crazy. People were being really ridiculous. You guys remember that? And you guys remember what all the people on the right said? It was always, oh, well, if we lost, we wouldn't act like that. This story and all the stories about the 2020 election proved to me that that's not true you guys lied old people be lying <laughs> old people be old folks be lying that's what this story and all the other stories have proven to me old folks be lying because there's no way like this is exactly the same it's just the same behavior it's a mirror image of 2016. It's just people screaming into the void about an election that they lost. And I can't do it anymore. I just can't deal with this shit anymore. Please let it go. 2020 was almost four years ago now. Your guy lost. That's it. (laughs) That's the end of the discussion at this point. Now, I am going to wait and see on this story because here's the thing. If it comes out that she was really working with a Mexican drug cartel to rig elections. Well, then we're having a totally different conversation. But as of right now, the open and shut case of this is Donald Trump lost the 2020 election, build a bridge, and get the fuck over it. 
moving on. The Wall Street Journal has reported that the Wuhan, that Wuhan, la, a Wuhan, God bless me in America. Whoa! A Wuhan lab leak is most likely the source responsible for 2020's COVID-19 pandemic. First off, duh. It feels like everybody's slowly reported this over the last two years that it was 100% a lab leak. It was 100% a man-made virus. And it just seems like we all forget about this. Now, here's the thing. Every once in a while, I know I was just talking lots of shit to conservatives about the Donald Trump thing, but it's not like they're always wrong. They were on top of this from the very beginning about this is a man-made thing from a lab in Wuhan, and we were just told that that was Asian hate. Well, the energy department believes that the virus originated in a Wuhan laboratory and was accidentally leaked to the public, it turns out. So, the energy department has been doing a report for, from what I read, the last basically year and a half about what happened, how did this virus like go basically undetected by the medical community. And the report's been made with low confidence. They don't, they're not 100% sure that this is what happened. And I would assume that's done to not give offense, to not offend anyone it's given with low confidence. It's to avoid, it's a, you know, because I'm sure it is a kind of a messy, messy political situation to just basically point at the Chinese government and be like, hey, you guys remember that time you nuked the world's economy for a year? (laughs) So the report was made with low confidence, but the Energy Department has basically come to the conclusion from their preliminary reports that the virus originated in a Wuhan laboratory. The FBI concluded the same thing in 2021. We are slowly reaching a point where public acknowledgement of the COVID-19 virus being man-made is like getting way bigger. And I I just wonder what's, how does this play out? Like, is this going to be one of those things that 20 years from now we look back and we're just like, how is this not the biggest story on earth for like six, for like a year? We are talking about a man-made virus that shut down the world economy for an entire summer. I don't understand how this is just such a small thing. And here's the thing. What was loud was the idea that any kind of suggestion that this was a man-made thing from a from a laboratory in China was just Asian hate. It was racist. It was, you know, prejudice. And I think people got so into that narrative that when legitimate you know, government departments and agencies were starting to come out and be like, actually, it's starting to look like, I gotta fix my hair. It's starting to look like that this is actually a thing, you know, turns out, it turns out that uh, this is made in a lab and this did come from China and this did come from Wuhan and that not everyone who suggested that was a, a crazy person living in their mother's basement. It seems like the media in general... You know, obviously, besides like Fox News, who has been on, who will take anything that makes anybody that they don't like look bad and run with it. They, the their refusal to acknowledge this stuff just makes them look so bad. And I don't understand why no one in media can admit when they're wrong. I don't understand that 
not even just like with stuff like this, but like you look at sports media, like why can no one just admit like I, we fucked this up. We got this wrong. Instead, everyone just stubbornly stands by their opinions. And in politics, it's worse because they, you know, when they, they not only stubbornly stand by their opinions, but they either call you racist, sexist, a homophobe, or if you're on the, or if you're on the left, they call you a communist, they call you a socialist, and they call you like a a degenerate. It's, everything is so politicized that now that we have, even now that we have clear evidence, clear evidence that the COVID-19 virus is man-made and comes from a lab in Wuhan and 100% was a, a, a concoction, we still have like a silence, it feels like, about, hey, we're not really going to talk about this because it makes us look stupid because we were wrong and we just doubted all these people. And I just, we will never get to a place where we can trust the American media until they are able to acknowledge when they make mistakes. And last, but certainly not least, UFC fighter John Jones will return this weekend. Uh, John has been on hiatus ever since his very, very, very close decision victory against Dominic Reyes at UFC 247 in February of 2020. Speaking of 2020, uh, John's been gone due to a combination of behavior issues as well as suspected doping. Now, John has been in trouble in the past for his behavior, obviously with the big hit and run thing when he was stripped of the UFC light heavyweight title. Um, trying to think what else he's been. There's been a few incidents with John where he's been in lots of trouble. He's a wild guy. He's he's openly spoke about heavy part the heavy partying he's done. He's openly spoke about a lot of his mistakes and John in many ways is probably the greatest and most flawed athlete I've ever watched in my life. And then the first time he got in trouble, now it, it, people have suspected, Chael Sonnen has a great story where he talks about he used to train with John Jones and he basically says John would hide from drug testing officials. And if that's true, that, like this is back in the day, back in like the early 2000, 2010s, back when drug testing wasn't as meticulous and hard to uh, trick as it is today. Whereas in the UFC today, it's very hard, I would say. it was. I would say it's harder than it's ever been to take steroids and not get caught. But John was the first time we, we heard about him maybe actually getting caught using performance-enhancing drugs was during his fight at UFC 212 with Daniel Cormier. Well, it actually, it was his set, first time he was scheduled to fight him was at UFC 200, and he was pulled out for that because he tested positive for metabolites in his system that indicate that he was maybe taking performance-enhancing drugs. Now, for those who aren't big on the UFC, who are those who don't watch a lot of fighting, it the conjecture on this between fighting fans, there's a lot of chit chat because for those who don't know, John has claimed that those metabolites come from the fact that he was taking like how do I describe them? Like almost like a Vi- Viagra type substance. A a, a God, what is it called? An erectile dysfunction drug. God, it took me a second to get there. 
basically because he was snorting so much cocaine that it would cause his penis to go flaccid. Whiskey dick for coke, if you're familiar with the phrase of that. And it would seem that he is pretty adamant that this is why he had elevated testosterone levels and why these metabolites showed up in his test is that he was it's called stacking he would do a lot of cocaine and then he would stack these uh erectile dysfunction pills on top of them so he could get an erection after doing all the cocaine well john finally got cleared of all that he won the title back and then he went on a tear where he beat up basically most of the 205 pound division and then after he went to a very close fight against Dominic Reyes, he essentially says that he's gonna fight he's gonna move up and fight at heavyweight. And this is when all the wild stuff happened with John and his negotiations with the UFC. So John Jones wants to get paid more by the UFC, so he refuses to fight. They take his UFC light heavyweight title. He gets in negotiations to fight the then UFC heavyweight champion Francis Ngannou. And we listen to these guys yell at each other on Twitter, talk shit to the UFC owner Dana White for two years. Two years of both of them trying to get this fight to happen. Only for Francis Ngannou to leave the promotion, to leave the UFC after his own negotiations fail. And that takes us to where we are now. So Francis Ngannou is a free agent. It's a lot of people think he's going to box Tyson Fury, which I think is a bad move for Ngannou because if Deontay Wilder couldn't knock out Tyson Fury, unless Francis Ngannou has, it, it truly has otherworldly nonsense power. I just think Tyson's probably going to humiliate Francis. And where we are now with John is he's going to fight surreal gain who has been on a roll lately, was the last guy to fight Francis and for the title before he, you know, said, peace. He's going to fight John for the vacant UFC heavyweight championship this weekend. Now, Surreal is an interesting opponent for uh, John because in a lot of ways, they're very similar. Uh, Surreal is a movement-based fighter. He's got a lot of, you know, punches and kicks. He's not a, a, a heavy hand guy. Like, he's not going to try to knock John out. I mean, he's going to try to knock John out, but not. that's not going to be, like, he's not going to be swinging for the fences. He's a very technical fighter. He's very much a pick-you-apart kind of guy, which is interesting because that really is how John fights. John is a very good pick-you-apart fighter. Now, I don't know which version of John we're going to see because originally in John's career, he was the wildest dude I've ever seen fight in my life. He would just throw anything at his opponent, and I mean anything flying knees, spinning elbows. So I, I would say we're probably going to see a more reserved John, which is good for Surreal because I think it could set up a fight potentially for him where he could get into a point fight with John Jones. And it's the only way I think Gain can beat John is if he outpoints him, but I just don't see that happening. I, I do think John becomes a heavyweight champion this weekend because John, no one has ever... No one has ever had, uh, no one's ever really, to me, tested John. No one's ever pushed John to the point where I actually thought he was going to lose. Besides Alexander Gustafson in in their first fight. And the only reason that happened is because John was doing like, was like sandblasting strippers the week before or something crazy like that. They say he only showed up like two weeks before the fight to train. So 
John taking things seriously, no one's ever even like tested him. And I just don't see that changing this weekend. I, I think he gets a, a, a decently easy win. I think he goes and gets himself a pretty decently easy victory. He becomes a heavyweight champion, and then we see what's next. What's next is probably him fighting Stipe. I, I just don't I don't see them working out whatever issues they have with Francis because he seems pretty pretty set in his ways that he's going to get his money. I'm sorry. The love of my life, my fiance, the best thing that's ever happened to me is messaging me. She's treating herself today, and I'm very proud, and I was letting her know. But, yeah, uh, I to me, what's next for John's probably Stipe. I can't see it being Francis. I can't see him wanting to fight anyone else. And then after that, I don't know what John does. But he's the heavyweight champ. I really don't. Oh, Lord Jesus. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that sounds like that's it for the news. But anyway, that's it for the news. We're going to move on to our main topic today, which our main topic today is something that I'm super excited for. It is... So, I've been called a bit of a movie snob. My, my fiancé who, as you just listened to me do, I was texting back. She, I'm, I am a little bit, what would I, what what word would I use? Ju- not judgmental, I'm not judgmental, but I am a bit of a snob. I am a bit pretentious when it comes to my movie watching. And that's because when I went to college, I took lots, I took a couple film classes and I, I I've always been interested in films and I've always, loved the filmmaking process and I've always loved like the idea of making movies the idea of taking a story and putting it on the big screen and making it real so to me what makes movies good and what makes movies bad is a very black and white sometimes thing and I don't know I I think I've had that question recently with the woman I love where as because here's the thing I also love so bad they're good movies. Movies like like I love the Friday the Thirteenth films. I've talked about this a lot, but they were my dad's favorite movie, you know favorite horror movies, and we watched them together. And I have an emotional attachment to them. But not only that, they're just entertaining. There's just something about them. There's just something about the cheesiness in them that I so desperately love. And I I don't I can acknowledge that they're not good movies. And I think there's a difference there. I do think that's something that people have trouble acknowledging. Is a movie can be bad and you still enjoy it. But the question I wanted to answer today, as someone who's a pretentious little shithead when it comes to watching movies, is what actually makes a movie good? Like, what is it that makes a film fun to watch and enjoyable? Is it the acting and, like, the creative side, like, the writing, the acting... You know the the directing and the you know all that stuff, or is it technically like the cinematography, the makeup, <clears throat> the special effects, the you know the 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 practical effects, everything that goes into making a movie look the way it does, or is it something in between? Is it something that you can't really put into words, you can't really describe? Well, we're gonna see if we can. We're gonna see today if, it, or at least if I can, if I can put into words. At least in my opinion, and I and I would love to hear from you guys, 
what makes a movie good? Like what what is it that makes in your mind a good movie, a good cinematic experience for you? So I'll start by saying, as I said, I have a very sophisticated movie palette. And in the sense that I, because I'm so invested in the film industry, because I, I've spent basically the whole time I've been an adult uh, being fixated on the film industry and how films are made and how films, you know, not even just made, but how films come to be, how something becomes what it is. I have a very black and white view of good and bad movies a lot. And it's a little harsh, I feel like, but I've started to soften up because, you know, when you look at things like a, like creativity in a movie, like the writing, to me, writing is the most important attribute of a movie. You can have good effects, you can have good makeup, you can have good costumes, you can have good, you can even have good acting, but if the writing is bad, there's nothing that can save the movie. Like, if it's just a bad story, if it's written poorly, if it's rushed, if it's too slow, you know, if it's the dialogue doesn't work. There's so much that goes into writing a film or writing a television series that people don't think about. You know, one of the things, I, you know, one of my favorite films of all time, probably my favorite film series of all time is Star Wars. I mean, I've got a, I've got a fucking clone trooper helmet sitting on this table with me, guys. All right. I've got a lightsaber in this room. All right, you hear that? You guys hear that? You can see it on screen. All right, so as you can see in here, Star Wars is is my favorite. Let me just put this back. My Star Wars is my favorite media property on Earth, and even the actors in Star Wars say the dialogue is a little ropey and it's a little cliche. And it is. But the rest of the story fits so well together that you, it's a movie that can overcome something like that. And I think that's one of the key things in writing is not everything you write has to work. But overall, you need more positives than negatives. And that might be the biggest thing I want to cover in this podcast is like more positives than negatives to me is a good movie. If I like more things about your movie than I dislike, to me that's that's a good film. That's a that's a good, well-made film. It may not be, you know, The Godfather, but it's a good movie. So, just to give you guys an example of my taste, movies I love, I just mentioned The Godfather. I love The Godfather. I love Star Wars. I love like one of my favorite movies of all time comedy-wise will always 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 be like stuff like Step Brothers, but it's simple stuff like I love George of the Jungle I love fourth wall breaking like you know Deadpool things like that the Marvel movies I'm hit and miss on you know I'll run through the big franchises real quick like the Marvel movies I'm hit and miss on I, but like the Harry Potter films I think all of the Harry Potter films are good but I think they have a ceiling it's just these are the movies but the movies I truly love are 
because the the movies that I love truly are I don't know how to describe it like I just I wish I could put to you guys the, the movies I like but you get a sense that like I I'm pretty much up for anything but I like movies that are creatively focused I don't like a lot of mess in my movies unless it's done correctly like I, I think the big thing I can give to you guys is movies I love like you know like things like The Godfather, things like Goodfellas, things like, you know, and obviously those are films that everybody loves, but things like, like a movie I really, really like is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with um, Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer, and it's just a lot of very clever humor, but like clever dialogue, clever humor is something that I really, really enjoy in films. I really like, basically what's going to be important to me is that something's well written, it makes sense. You know, and it's the dialogue is is good. I don't need the big flashy effects; they're nice. I now here's the thing: I do need my movies to look good. I don't. I I can't watch something that looks like shit. But effects aren't the most important part of the movie to me. Like like I don't watch the Avatar movies. I'm not a big Avatar guy. That's because I feel the story is very simple, and there's not a lot of. To me, there's not a lot of intrigue in what's going to happen is because I, I have a baseline idea of what the story is and how it's going to go. So the only reason I would be going would be to experience the film visually. And to me, there's just not a lot of movies that give me that visual experience that I'm that I just have to see. So I ignore all of the other stuff from the film. You know? So... I am a big writing guy. I am a big, like, obviously murder mysteries are big to me. Obviously things like uh, documentaries are fun, but I don't even count those as movies. But, like, like shows like You I really like, or so, like Clue. Clue is one of my favorite movies of all time because I think it's super smartly written. It's super well acted, and it's very, very fun. Uh, all of the... Like Glass Onion. Glass Onion is one of my favorite movies that just came out last year. It was so much fun. It's so well written. It's so funny. And it looks beautiful. It's like, but movies like that, that, those are the kind of movies that I'm naturally drawn to. Like Bullet Train is a movie that I want to bring up to people a lot. Bullet Train is exciting. It's fun. But one of the things I love about it is it's, it's so smart in the way that it does things, in the way that it sets up each part of the story. But those are the kind of movies I love. And movies I hate, I hate pretty much anything like like the Fifty Shades of Grey genre movies, the Magic Mike movies. I wouldn't say I hate them, but I can acknowledge that they're not for me. And I, and I think we can all acknowledge that they really don't – there's really one thing that's selling them and it's sex. So sex sells movies don't get to me. I, I have no interest in them. And that's not even like a shot against women. Like even sex sells movies for men. I'm not big into there's not like there's not a lot of movies where the 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 focal point of the movie is just there are lots of hot people in our movie I'm going to watch it just because it, that's not something that I'm into in fact it's one of my least favorite genres of film and television is the there's lots of attractive people in our movie and tv show you should watch it if I'm gonna do that I'm gonna be honest with you guys if I want to masturbate I'm just gonna watch porn like that's it seems way simpler than to watch essentially softcore porn on a big screen. I 
I'm not a fan of romantic comedies, but that's not because I don't like romantic comedies. It's because they're they're done to death. There's so many of them. There's so many of them. There's there's a thousand romantic comedies all the time. I, I, you just can't escape them. And I'm not even talking about like the Hallmark ones. I'm not talking about like Hallmark and A&E movies. I'm talking about like full-blown production Julia Roberts style romantic comedies. Just think about how many romantic comedies have Julia Roberts in them. There's just there it's an oversaturated genre and unless you have something really inventive, I'm not going to watch a romantic comedy. I'm just not. I feel that way about a lot of things. Like one of the big stories that came out last year was that Bros movie, which was a gay romantic comedy, about how people didn't go and watch it and and Billy Eichner who wrote the movie. And I have a lot of respect for Billy Eichner. I think he's a, a wonderful actor. And I think he's a very bright guy and a very interesting writer. I just don't... I, but he said it was because it was a gay romantic comedy. And I don't think it has anything to do with homosexuality. I think... I mean, yes... Let me rephrase that. I think it does. But... Like, obviously there are dudes that are homophobic that are just not going to go watch that movie because it is a movie about men who have sex with men. I don't care about that. And I think a lot there are a lot more people who don't care about that than we give credit for. But romantic comedies are played out and unless, you know, I know the hook of that movie was that it's a gay romantic comedy and that's fine, but that's not enough of a hook for me to care. <laughs> because it sounds to me like it's just going to be another romantic comedy this time I think to me that's a sign of society moving forward is that to us even though yes this is a big deal you know that there's a gay romantic comedy to us it's just kind of like yeah but what else is there like, yes it, that's to me a good sign for society is that homosexuality has been accepted to the point that just two men being gay in a movie is not enough to hook america and i, I and yes there's always going to be people who are not going to go to see a movie that has gay people in it because they're gay and I agree with that, but but moving on, I, I you know movies that I really really hate. Like I'm trying to think what other genres and movies I'm not really into. Like I don't know. It's it's hard to explain my movie taste because movies I should hate, I don't. Like The Room, I think The Room's hilarious, but again. There's just something about a movie that's made so incompetently that it is it just it truly tickles me in the right way. And there's so bad they're good movies like like the Friday the Thirteenth movies or like something like let me think you know all the sci-fi movies like occasionally there's a sci-fi movie that really cracks me up. But so it's a weird way to describe movies. But like I I don't even think you can really count like. TV movies, like like TV, like movies made by TV channels, because it just seems unfair. It just seems like they are mm, like they they just operate from a different wavelength. So the only thing I'm gonna talk about here when it comes to make what makes a movie good is obviously if a movie doesn't have a big budget or stuff like that. But even that doesn't explain it because then you have to look at something like the Blair Witch Project, which by the way is a movie I don't like. I think the Blair Witch Project is a uh, but I respect it. It's a weird thing with the Whalers Project. I don't personally like it, and that's probably because I'm a young fella. I'm, you know, 26 years old, going on 27, so I don't have the the you know, context of 
what horror movies used to look like before this. But to me, like I, you know, so I, I've seen a thousand found footage horror movies, and to me, the Blair Witch Project is boring. But I understand its place in history. It's it's an ingenious concept, and so those are the movies that gives you kind of hopefully, as I've just rambled on here for you guys, a, an idea of the movies that I like, the movies that I enjoy, the things I look for in a good movie, the things I don't look for, but. Let me list, let me just, when we get, let's get into this topic really like this. So technical aspects. How important is a technical aspect? To me, technical aspects are very important in the movie. And if you want like a technical aspect is like cinematography, which is like how a movie shot. Like when you see these big wide shots and a big example I want to give for this right now of good, really great cinematography. If you're not watching a show like The Last of Us. But like something like Titanic, when you get those big wide shots in Titanic. But like The Last of Us, the beautiful cinematography really sets the scene. And I, I think cinematography is one of those things that's so underappreciated in film. Because the way a movie looks and the way things are shot can convey such emotions that it's so important to get that right. That it's so underlooked sometimes and I think it's just it is one of the most important factors of cinema is how your movie is shot what angle are you looking at who are we looking at what are we looking at why are we looking at it that is such an important piece of movie making and that's all cinematography and to me that that has to be on point things like sound design like if you can't like if i can't hear the movie the technical aspects of films are so important and this is the part of it that's black and white really is you know, the thing, like, how does the movie look? What does the makeup look like? What do the physical effects look like? What do the, the special effects look like? And to me, this is very easy to tell. Like, you know, you have a movie, and, like, here's the thing. I don't like the movie Terrifier for the creative reasons. I think it's a poorly written, poorly thought out, just gore fest. But the special effects in, in Terrifier are what make it. And it's why those movies are so successful, is the special effects department is killing it. You know, the effects they make for those movies. Uh, but the special effects they make for those movies is just nonsensically on point. Like the gore effects, even in the first one, which has a has an insanely low budget. So does the second one. You would think all the effects from you, all the money had to be used on effects. And, and it was a smart move. It was a smart call because, you know, the acting's awful. The writing's awful. All of that is awful. And yes, there's a tinge of of, of self awareness in it, but there it's not enough that makes the movie and its creative aspects enjoyable for me. But technically, it is the special effects are wonderful, and it is a pretty well shot movie. There are shots in that movie that are actually genuinely scary, and to me, when you can do that, I'm always going to be impressed. But the technical aspects of films are really 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 important <laughs> honestly the technical aspects of film are the most important part of the film it really is because it's the baseline you know i'm i would consider myself if i was in movies i would be probably more on the creative side i would want to write and direct these are the people that make this stuff come to life that make the stuff that like if you're a writer like if i was a writer these are the people that would make what i would see in my head come to life and they are the bloodline of the movie industry. And to me, 
it's the thing you got to nail the most is your special effects, your cinematography, your costumes, your makeup, your your all of that has to be at least good. It doesn't have to be great. Not everything has to look, you know, like it was it's, it was made in a 2 million dollar studio. But it has to look good. It has to look believable. It has to look nice. Now, obviously the challenge for the technical aspects is raised and and shrunk by what kind of movie you're making. Obviously, the effects department for, you know, The Sopranos isn't going to have to work as hard as the effects department for Stranger Things. The effects department for The Godfather isn't going to have to work as hard as the effects department for Jurassic Park. But no matter what movie you're working on, no matter what kind of movie you're working on, how it looks and how it sounds is in essence such an important part of film the most important part of filmmaking because if your movie looks good and your movie sounds good people are going to watch it that is one thing that's been proven if nothing if you know if avatar and marvel prove nothing else to you if a movie looks good and it sounds good people will come to see it in the theater and you know, so the technical aspects of filmmaking are very important and is but I don't think that's what makes a movie good. I, I think it's a combination of the two because you look at the creative aspects. You know, you think of some of the best acting performances, like when you think of acting. You know, like for me it would be like like Joaquin Phoenix and Joker, even if you don't like Joker, is a wonderful acting performance and he carries the whole movie on his back. Now, don't get me wrong. Technically, it's beautiful. It's a beautifully shot movie. It, everything is wonderful. The 70s aesthetic is completely brought out. But Joaquin Phoenix is what gives, and his performance, and the writing around his performance is what gives the movie its 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 breath. I guess if I could describe this, like a technical aspect or like the body of a movie. And then the, the creative aspects are the soul. You know, you have to have them both work in unison for the movie to work. And there are so many movies I can give examples of where the technical aspects are on point. But the movie itself is just off. Like when you look at the Jurassic Park films, what they did like Jurassic World. Fallen Kingdom is a movie that I, I enjoy, but I can acknowledge that there's a lot of stupidity in it. The reason people don't like that movie has nothing to do with the technical aspects. The CGI and the practical effects in that film are incredible. It is a beautiful film. But there is so much cheesy dialogue and nonsensical situations that you are you are led to believe. And, and you know, another movies that fall under this are the Fast and Furious franchise. Beautiful movies, beautifully shot, beautiful CGI, beautiful special effects, beautiful practical effects. But there's a there's just illogical points in the writing and the structure of the film that, at least for me, check me out. And I know check a lot of people out. So, in a way, you have to have a combination of both. The best thing... So this is where, like, this is where I strive, obviously, as someone who took creative writing classes in college who took script writing classes in college screen screenwriting classes you know it to me like when you watch 
a movie or a show, yes, it has to sound good. Yes, it has to look good, but it has to make sense to you. Like, it has to be something that makes sense to you. It has to be something that reaches out and grabs you from the creative aspect, whether it be an actor or a writer. Like someone I really respect in writing, like when they come to when it comes to writing films and making movies, is James Gunn. And the reason for that is he's made so many different things. Now he is kind of in a, a, a formula, you know, rhythm thing now. But with you know with Marvel and now DC, but just because he is he's established a formula doesn't mean he hasn't done like you know when you look at like a movie he did called Slither, which is a horror comedy. I, it's so interesting. It's such an interesting concept. It's a great looking movie. First off, it's disgusting at points, but it's one of those movies where he does this perfect balance of horror, of black dark horror comedy and horror aspects and you get that in some like like when you watch suicide squad you get some of what you saw from slither and you know i i think to me someone who has the ability or someone like sam raimi like i love sam raimi's writing style or you know i mean there's just when you have someone who creatively has control of the ship and knows what they're doing I think it is such an advantage because I think it's, it's another thing. Like, here, this is what it is. Technically, you cannot overcome bad writing. Like, your movie can look great, sound great, be it and and a a beautiful assault on the eyes. And if the characters are unlikable and the dialogue is stupid and the story doesn't make any sense, people are gonna hate it. But creatively, you can overcome special effect. You can you can overcome technical mistakes. Again, another I'll bring up The Last of Us because people are the worst. There was a technical mis- error in The Last of Us. You could see the camera crew on one of the security cams that's shown in the show. Like you can see a camera crew recording Joel and Ellie, who are Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, and nobody really cares about stuff like that like people brought it up on twitter and hbo edited it out because the the human beings are the worst but no one really cares like no one really gives a shit about stuff like that and the reason being is because pedro pascal's acting and like the acting of like the performances in the show of bella ramsey pedro pascal they're so emotional and they're so tight and they're so perfect and the writing is crisp and all the dialogue is natural all of the situations they find themselves in they have logical conclusions and there are unexpected twists but it's nothing that doesn't it's nothing that subverts the movie or the, the show and to me when you have great creative writing when you have great performances when you have great things like that that is what those that creativeness can overcome technical errors can overcome spotty cgi at points can overcome spotty sound design at points and that's the only way you can overcome that is if you have good creativity good writing good acting and all of those aspects factor into making a good movie so in reality when it comes to like the physical filmmaking how films are made how they are written and and designed and all that it takes everyone it is a a all hands on deck thing so what does that leave us 
as we sit here and we ramble and I ramble to you guys and you probably think to yourselves, you know, what what do I think makes a movie good? What what do I like in a film? What do I enjoy in a movie? What makes what gives me a satisfactory cinematic experience? I'm going to argue with you guys. That's what makes a movie good. Is you the audience. So here's the thing. I I am not a big Harry Potter fan. I do think for the most part they're average to good movies. None of them are is a truly great film. However, the fans are so into it and they love it so much and what they get from it like how it makes them feel and does it how it makes them think and the lore behind it fans of these movies are what make movies that's what makes movies good what makes a movie good is does it make you feel something does it make you think does it make you does it get an emotional response out of you not like a bad one not anger or frustration unless that's the goal but does it get the emotional response out of you that it desires? Like the Fast and the Furious movies. I don't personally enjoy them. But if you watch those movies and they make you feel excited and they make, you know, they get, you know, when like when you thought Letty was dead, it made you sad. Like if the movie makes you feel and it makes you think, that's a good movie. And who is someone, you know, we have these movie critics and I review movies and I give my opinions on movies. But who am I? Who is a movie critic to tell you what you can and can't enjoy, what you can and cannot think is good? I think good is just a frame of reference. Now, now, are there objectively bad movies in my opinion? Absolutely. There are movies that, you know, two things can be true at once. You can enjoy a film and it still be a bad movie. Like I ferociously enjoy the new Megan movie, which I reviewed which you'll be seeing in the review here soon. Uh, and I can acknowledge, it's probably, I wouldn't call it a good movie. It's okay, but it's very fun, and I enjoyed myself. And the question I think you have to ask yourself, is what movie, does the movie make you feel the emotion it make trying to make you feel? If it's a horror movie, does it make you feel scared? You know, if it's a comedy movie, does it make you laugh? If it's an action movie, does it make you feel excited and give you a rush of adrenaline? Movies are designed to to get emotional responses, to elicit emotional responses. Yes, as I just went probably way too long describing, there are lots of technical things that go into making films. But movies realistically are about making you feel. And if a movie makes you feel, then it's a good movie. And who am I and who is anyone else to tell you guys otherwise? And that's about all I got for you guys. I mean, it's it's a hard topic to cover, really, for me, because it's just I could go on and on, and there's so much I could go on about it, but it's hard to describe because it really is a feeling. It, you know, and movie making is something I have such a passion about that it's hard for me to put all of my feelings and emotions on movie making and what I think makes movies good you know into digestible thoughts for you guys because i don't want to continue to ramble on maybe i maybe i do have more maybe i lied to you guys because you know films films are a passion of mine because of what i said they're designed to make people feel things and trying to objectively parse out what makes them good now obviously like the technical aspects like 
I think we can all agree that if a movie looks and sounds like shit, then it's a bad movie. Like, at that point, you're just doing schadenfreude. And there are a lot of, like, you know, I look at something like The Terrifier, which I think is technically brilliant, but creatively really dumb. I, you know, I think, yes, you will have your small... Your small like fandoms of, of of movies and shows like that, but realistically, I think you just I think it's an all hands on deck. Like I said, you you have to, the creative and the technical have to meet together to create an experience for the viewer that makes it good. And and there are to me that's what makes the film good is if it if you as the viewer get something out of it if you as the viewer get what the intention and get and it's a story that may takes you on a journey that takes you somewhere where you can emotionally invest yourself then it's a good film and who am i to say otherwise but we'll move on to would you rathers because i I don't want to you know obviously drag on and waste your guys' time i know this podcast will, could be this podcast will be three four hours long, and I'm sure we'll get there where they are three four hours long. But I don't know how long you want to hear me gush about the film industry. And hey, I'll be back. I'll be back on this on these topics like this. You know, the the film industry, as I said, is one of my favorite things on earth. Maybe my favorite thing on earth. It's it's my dream to get involved in it. My absolute one hundred percent dream to be a filmmaker in some way shape or form and to to create to make these stories in a way that you guys get to see them to to take the ideas that i've had for films and television and make them a reality is my dream and i'll discuss with anyone what makes them good you know what makes them bad anything on the film industry is is a topic i'm interested in if you guys have suggestions besides like what makes a movie good I'm in on that. But that closes today's main topic. We'll move on to some fun stuff. Like, would you rathers? Uh, would you rather have everyone read your thoughts or your internet history? Um, this is a tough one. <laughs> because, like, uh, my whole internet history... Uh, oh, God. I feel like if I... Like, the internet history one is hard because, like... I feel almost like Nick Miller. Like, I'm just like, I wasn't trying to build a bomb. I was just curious. You know, like, there are things on my internet history that would probably indicate me as as a very foul person that I was just maybe had questions about. But mostly, because, you know, I'm a young man in his 20s, it would be lots of porn. I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, really, the internet history thing, I think I would, would have someone rather read my thoughts, though. Because my thoughts really are just a lot of, like, thinking about movies and hating people. You know what I mean? Just hating the general public because I'm, I'm not a people person. I have a lot of social anxiety and me hating myself. And I would rather someone see that than the things I have gotten curious about and looked up on the internet. I looked up uh, CVR crash recordings, guys, from planes. Okay, somebody's going to have serious questions about my mental stability if they look at my internet history. And I just, I would rather be able to read my mind. 
would you guys rather have your hero vomit on you or vomit on your hero? This is an easy one for me. If I got to meet Bill Hader, I would much rather have him throw up on me. If I threw up on Bill, I would be fucking mortified. But if he threw up on me, I would almost wear it as a sign of respect. I would never wash that shirt. I would never wash what I was wearing. I would just keep it forever and cherish it. And I feel like that's a that's a very that's a pretty reasonable reaction to such things, you know? Like how could like, you know, what am I supposed to do? What am I going to do? Am I going to I don't know. I throwing up on someone you admire just sounds miserable. Cuz it sounds like all you would want to do is run away and die for the rest of your life. But if they threw up on you, yeah, it would mortify them, but they're famous. They're, you know, they're your hero. They're your celebrity. You're going to be like, yeah, it's whatever. I don't know. I would, yeah, I would much rather throw up on Bill than have Bill throw up on me. That's right, Bill. You are my hero. To go from a guy in community college in Oklahoma to trying out for SNL to being on what I think is is the most intelligent, funny, emotionally scarring show going today, which is Barry on HBO. Bill is my hero. Bill is Bill now. Someone like Zach Krager, or someone like Zach Krager would also be my hero. One of the whitest guys you know who just uh, wrote and directed Bar- Barbarian. Yeah, I would rather them throw up on me. 1,000%. Or Sam Raimi, or, you know, it's, you know, all those guys, puke on me. Martin Scorsese, puke on me, please. Don't, don't, I don't want to throw up on them. Would you rather wear the same pair of socks for a month or same pair of underwear for a week? This was hard for me. But I'm going to go underwear here because I, I I feel like this is a question of like, how well do you really clean your ass after you go to the bathroom? <laughs> because here's the thing. If you are a cleanly person who, you know, cleans your buttocks and is keeps the nether regions of your, of your body relatively spotless, I feel like wearing the same underwear for a week is doable. Like, yeah, it's going to be gross. And yeah, you're going to feel real bad about yourself at the end of that those seven days. But if you keep things clean and tidy, you could do it. The same pair of socks for a month? Dude, with the way my feet smell, there's no way. There's no way. A month? 28 days? What? No way. There's no way I could do it. There's no way I could do it. <laughs> There's no way I could wear a pair. I, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll bring Samantha on here for you guys and let her her explain. <laughs> let her explain how bad the feet can get. Uh, and she would agree. She would be like, I think you could probably because I I keep I keep things downstairs pretty tight, pretty pretty tidy. I think she'd be like she would agree with me. She'd be like, you could probably do the underwear thing. She would not allow me. To wear the same pair of socks for an entire month. That's insanity. So for me, it's for sure underwear for a week. Uh, would you rather lose all your teeth for lose all your teeth or a year of your life every time you kiss someone? I have to go lose all my teeth here because I do a lot of kissing. I I, I kiss my fiance a lot. I'm a very I am a very 
touch-oriented person. Not a lot of touching. Like, I'm not obnoxious. I'm not going to throw myself upon you. But, you know, maybe just a little touch of the arm, a little, you know, pat on the ass. Nothing insane. I'm not a monster. And I, but I do, you know, I, I do enjoy my sugar. Daddy enjoys his sugar. That was gross. I'm sorry I said that to all of you. <laughs> but, you know, I, I love to be loved and I love to love. And for me, the idea of losing a year, well, I don't know. Mm, that's a good question. Because I could get kisses and live and not have to suffer this, ex, you know, the, this gruesome experience called life any longer. I'm going to lose all my teeth, though. I, I, I can't because I, I promised Sam I would outlive her. So I guess I'm I guess I'm losing all my teeth there. I guess I'm going gumless. This is for you. Know that, my love. This is for you. I would lose all of my teeth to continue to kiss you. All right. And would you rather be gassy on the first date or on your wedding night? Mm. For me, it's first date here. Uh, or no, it's not first date. For me, it's, yeah, it's first date. Because you know what? I had a pretty bad first date with the woman I'm going to marry. And I don't imagine that gas would have uh, would have improved any. I'll, I'll tell the story right here. So when I met Samantha... I was a young lad of just 25 years old. No, 24. 23, 24. Uh, it, my, I sleep, I've slept since then, so I'll never remember. But I was, I've never been good with women. I've never been good at talking to women. And I've never been good at making the first move. And we knew, we had a mutual friend, my friend Hunter, his wife was a mutual friend of ours and she introduced us and we hit it off you know we had really great conversations um and we went on our first day our first day was actually on valentine's day weekend and i had planned everything i was going to take her out to texas roadhouse we're going to go out to eat and then maybe watch a movie when we got back to you know like watch a movie if she wanted to when we got back to her house but when i got to texas roadhouse it was a three-hour wait and i didn't want to force my date to wait three hours outside of the restaurant in the cold so we left and instead of you know doing the smart thing and you know calling and seeing if there was anywhere else that had openings that we could go eat or just picking up some fast food maybe and having a cute little fast food date in the car or doing something you know that would make sense that still probably wouldn't be great but would have at least made sense i passed all the food places (laughs) went back to her house we watched a movie, we didn't eat, and then I went home. And then rightfully, after not feeding her on the first date, Sam didn't talk to me for like two months. Now, luckily it ended up working out and she gave me a second chance. I did get to feed her and, you know, obviously we're engaged now, so things worked out. But I, you know, oh, 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 it was such a bad first date. It was such a bad, I did such a bad job, guys. The fact that this woman agreed to marry me and the fact that she ever gave me a second chance is miraculous. So I, I think having gas probably wouldn't have wouldn't have hurt my first date experience, my last first date experience. You know, the the final first date experience I'll ever have. I don't think it would have hurt it any. I think, it, you know, I don't think it would have made it any worse than it already was. So I would like my wedding night to go as perfect as possible. 
I would like the night I marry this woman to go flawlessly, if at all possible. Now, that's not going to happen because it never happens for me. Uh, but So no gas on the wedding night. I'll take gas on the first date. Let's go to the What If series. This is new. I haven't done these. Uh, I'm going to ask some What If questions first to myself, later with guests. And I'm going to answer you and tell you what I would do. So what if I could have any job I wanted? Pick one. I guess I would write and direct movies. Because I just said that. But stand-up comedian is right there, man. I have so much respect for stand-up comedy. I have so much respect for stand-up comedians. I think they are such underrated entertainers and performers. Because when you just, you know, when you like when you look at the stand-up comedians who have transitioned into film roles, they're so good at it. And the reason being is delivering uh comedy is hard. Takes timing, takes uh you know, takes timing, takes a lot of focus, takes the perfect delivery. There's just so much about stand up that is so impressive and I, I and I love making people laugh. It's one of you know, right behind movie making, it's my passion. I, I love the feeling I get when I you know, it's part of the reason I did this podcast. The feeling I get watching people genuinely chuckle and genuinely like belly laugh is just something I can't describe and so for me it would be a toss up between writing and directing movies and making stories come true or making people laugh for the rest of my life and being a stand-up comedian so I don't know I'll go write and direct movies but that's just because I don't know maybe stand-up comedian because I don't know if I can write and direct movies I'm I think I'm pretty funny now, maybe I'm wrong about that and you guys are getting ready to really hurt my feelings on this show, but I, I think I think I'm pretty funny. Uh, what if you could change one thing about yourself? I would be pretty. That's what I would change. I think it's like the only thing that holds me back in life. If I was pretty and I had this personality, I would rule the fucking world by now. All right? If I looked like Matt Fife, if I looked like comedian Matt Rife, I would... I, I would run this shit. All right? I just would. It's just a fact. Okay? I don't think I'm that pretty. I think I am a solid 6 out of 10. Solid 6. 7 on a good day. 7 seven to 7.5 on a good day. But I'm like a solid 6. 6 out of 10. If I was an 8, just an 8. I don't have to be a 10. Just an 8. If I was just like 6 foot, a little more ripped. I'd rule the world. I would rule the world. That's the one thing I would change about myself. I would be pretty. Okay? I would be a pretty man. If I could have any superpower, which one would I want? I want to fucking fly. Okay? Every time they do it in a movie, I'm just like, God, that looks cool. Okay? What world? What world? Do you all live in where you're like, oh, I want to be invisible. Oh, I want to be able to read. Fuck you. You read people's minds and your invisibility. We all want to fly. Okay. We all want to fly. Everyone, every single person on earth wants to leave their friend's house and be like, all right, I'll see you guys later. And just whip up into the sky. Could you imagine? I just told you one of the, the worst first date stories you've probably ever heard. I didn't feed a woman. I didn't take her to a restaurant. 
We just drove around and talked, and then I took her home and we watched a movie together, and she stopped talking to me for two months. Do you know how much different that day would have been if I could fucking fly? I wouldn't have needed to feed her. I wouldn't have needed to. I could have just grabbed her and took off. Whole new world, that shit. All right? All right. Oh, I mean, come on. It's not even a question. 100% I would want to fly. And what if you could be transported to any fictional world? Hmm. I mean, I'm going Star Wars, obviously. I I have never wanted anything in my life like I want would want to be a Jedi. But I don't think I have the constitution for it. I don't think I have the mental fortitude to be a Jedi Knight, even though I would want it desperately. And if you you know what, if you guys come out here and you tell me, "No, Kyle, if you were in Star Wars, you'd definitely be a Jedi. First off, don't make me cry like that. But I think just the idea of like, I wouldn't even have to be a Jedi. Just to be like Han Solo. Just be like a smuggler. Just making your way through the galaxy. Your own spaceship and all that. That's probably what I want more than anything. I've always wanted my own spaceship. Be able to just go anywhere. Do anything. In the Star Wars world. Especially since it's been like expanded and explored, all the stuff that you get to do, you can you know, go meet Mando and all of that. I, that obviously is the world I'm gonna pick. I don't care that it's dangerous. I don't care that there's things trying to kill the protagonist all the time. I don't care that there's creatures. I don't care that there's Darth Vader. Don't care. It looks so magical to be in that world. It looks so fun to be in the Star Wars universe, and I I would be, I would absolutely be in Star Wars. Absolutely. No questions asked. Put me in the Millennium Falcon. No questions. But I'm sure a lot of you would say like, but it's hard for me because I just started playing Hogwarts Legacy. That's part of the reason I put this question on here. And being transported into the fictional world of Harry Potter has been way more engrossing for me than I thought it was going to be. Because I never thought I was a big Harry Potter guy and holy shit, I have lost my life to this video game. I have a problem. I have a serious problem with it. And I just, I can't, I can't, I can't stop. And it really made me think, like, maybe I'd want to be a wizard. <laughs> because this looks fucking cool. <laughs> you know? Like, I always say I wanted to fly, and I get it with both on that. I get it with both. I can fly in Star Wars, and I can fly in Harry Potter. But I'm going Star Wars just because I think, I think it would be... I just think that I would find more pleasure in being in the stars. And here we go. Another new segment. Look at me spoiling you guys to end this show. A segment where I'm going to give you guys an opinion I have that I've gotten a lot of pushback on. I'm going to give you guys opinions that I get a lot of pushback on. Let's put it that way. Opinions that I get a lot of pushback on. People press me. They say, Kyle, you're wrong. You don't know what you're talking about there. And uh, this segment is called Am I Wrong? And I'm going to ask you, my audience, my, my, my faithful and friendly but intense listeners, am I wrong? And our, our first Am I Wrong is about Hocus Pocus, the, the Bette Midler movie. Not Bette Midler. Who's in that? 
Let me look that up real quick because I, I say Bette Midler every time, but I'm and I'm pretty sure it's Bette Midler. But I want to be I want to be 100% positive with you guys. I don't want to get yelled at because you no know, lots of people like this movie. My fiance included it is Bette Midler. That's right. I know my I know my fucking I know my Broadway singers. But Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy. You know, it's a it is a huge, huge movie. A fantasy comedy, obviously, that follows the Sanderson sisters, if you've never seen it. The Sanderson sisters in the movie are three witches who use the life force of children to keep themselves young. It is a Halloween classic by this point. I can't remember. I believe it is a it is a Disney movie, and I not just a Disney movie. One of like the, like a Disney Channel type of movie. If you've never seen it, I can't imagine there are there's anyone on Earth that hasn't seen this damn thing. But in just in case you've been living under a rock, that's what Hocus Pocus is about. It is a cult classic movie. Like everyone, everyone it feels like on Earth has seen this film. It probably through annual airings that happen every Halloween, you know? So, my opinion about this movie that gets people, my fiance and both of her cousins so hot is that it's fucking cheesy. It is that it's not really this great masterpiece of a film that people make it out to be. It's a fucking cheesy movie. And I stand by this opinion. Because it is. It's a Disney Channel movie, essentially, <laughs> that was put on the big screen. It got mixed reviews from film critics, which film critics are the fucking worst, so who gives a shit? But it also wasn't a box office success when it first came out. It became a cult classic, just like... Rocky Horror Picture Show before it. But Rocky Horror Picture Show is, you know, fucking magic. So, <laughs> this movie to me is one of those movies that we all have nostalgia goggles for. We watched it when we were kids and we love it so much and we just look past the flaws. But it does have flaws. So, I, I've thought really long and hard about this because I've seen this movie a couple times. I've seen this movie frequently, frequently because every girl I've ever dated loves this film and the girl I'm going to spend the rest of my days with is one of her favorite films ever. And I always get pushback on this. I understand that there – and there are parts of the movie that are really good. Like Sarah Jessica Parker does a very, very good job of portraying the dumb character and Bette Midler is just chef's kiss, chewing the scenery every moment she gets in this film. But the overall plot of the movie is a bit ridiculous. But that's fine. It's a Disney movie. And to me, the actors who play the kids, you know, that are supposed to be the emotional selling point of the film, do a bad job. But the overall, to me, it's the overall, like, theme of the movie. You know, I mean, it's just kind of... and. Maybe that's what I'm missing is that's part of its charm is that it is kind of cheesy and hokey and, and kind of nonsensical. Like, you know, the first off, the reason the movie is – the reason the movie works so well despite the fact that it's a cheesy fucking mess sometimes is the three women playing the witches, Sarah Jessica Parker, 
Bette Midler and Kathy and Jimmy are incredible in the roles. They do such a good job making stuff that should be ridiculous funny. Like the writing on the 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 vacuum cleaners and the other stuff and like all of that should be things that we all roll our eyes at but we don't because these women sell it so so well. And I've always argued that that's what people like. We we watch these movies for Winifred, Sarah and Mary. It's it's nothing else. The movie's not well written. It doesn't look good. I don't care what anyone says. When you watch that movie, it looks like you are it is it looks like you are watching well a 90s film, but it, you know, it looks like a fucking Disney Channel movie as I've said multiple times. It looks like you are watching Halloween Town. And there's nothing wrong with Halloween Town, but I'm just saying for a major motion picture, that's not what they're supposed to look like. <laughs> and but and the the acting other than these three girls is not great it's just not there's a lot of overacted and underacted moments in this movie the bullies like the you know you look at things like the riot like when i talk about the writing being hokey you know you look at the classic 90s bullies who are like shaking out lunch money and shit like that or you know the classic put upon poor boy is is after the pretty rich girl like all of these themes are cheese classic cheese nonsense but these three women playing these witches sell it all so well that people fall in love with this movie and they look at it not only that they fall in love with this movie with you we look at this movie like we look at you know it's like a childhood classic it's a movie that we look back on as adults and we remember all the good times we had watching hocus pocus going trick-or-treating and all that stuff and i think it really warps us to believe that this movie is better made than it is not that it's better than it is it, i i think hocus pocus is a good movie first things before i finish this and everyone rips my fucking head off I think Hocus Pocus is a good film. I just think it's a little hokey. And I think we have done... It's one of a great example of a film that we overlook its flaws because it makes us feel something. And I wanted to talk about this movie because it ties back into the main subject, which is what makes a movie good? You know, I there are a lot of technical issues with this movie. Not everything sounds great. Not everything looks great. And, and and some of the special and practical effects are crazy. Now, the special effects on, like, Billy, like, the, the dude who's the cat. Not the cat. The dude who's the who comes back to life. That's cool. I mean, those are pretty good practical effects. He looks great. But there's just... To me, there's a lot about this movie that we overlook. And I think it's cheesy. And I... But, I think it's the good cheesy. I think it's a good, fun kind of cheesy that we all get to enjoy. But can we please stop making it out to be some kind of cinematic masterpiece? I have no problem with us all acknowledging that this is a Halloween classic and it's a cheesy Halloween classic. Hell, all of the Halloween... There's only like three good Halloween movies. The rest of them are cheesy. But they're all Halloween classics. And I don't know, guys. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? Am I wrong here? Is Hocus Pocus not cheesy? Am I just a cynical asshole? Is that really what this is? Am I just a cynical, pretentious, 
movie-watching snob, that's also very possible. And so, am I wrong, audience? Is Hocus Pocus cheesy? Well, guys, that's going to do it. Thank you for tuning into the Planet Comedy Podcast. Thank you for joining me on this journey and the, the all the ups and downs we've experienced together. You can find us on social media at The Planet Comedy on Facebook and Instagram at the PCP Gang on Twitter. You can find YouTube content for us, Planet Comedy on YouTube. We have full episodes of the show posted there, audio. Uh, I'm going to try to figure out how to get the videos up there. I'm going to have movie and TV reviews coming out. Megan, the Megan review, the Megan unrated review, it's coming soon. It's coming this week. This week, I'm going to do everything I can. Uh, I'm going to be rewriting some movies I think had good concepts, but uh, fell a little flat on their face. And uh, do some live movie watch-longs with you guys. Uh, where you can find the podcast. Where you can find me and the Planet Comedy Podcast. iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Pandora, SoundCloud. Pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. Check out the other Planet Comedy Podcasts as well if you enjoyed this one. If you like sports, uh, check out Average Joe's College Football Show. A college football podcast made for fans by fans. It's a comedic take on the shockingly serious world of college football. Game recaps, previews, and live watch-alongs, tailgating vlogs, all that's coming next season. It'll be our third season doing this show. Uh, That's with hosts, uh, the Florida Gator himself, Mr. Kyle Sullivan, and Louisville Cardinal, Big Billy Early Wine, and I obviously am also on that show. There's Pretty Primal, which is an upcoming Planet Comedy podcast featuring my good friend, my mother's good friend, someone I basically, basically an aunt to me, Miss Jasmine McHugh will be hosting. It's a relationship podcast. Why relationships exceed, why they fail. They're going to talk about sex, dining, online dating, and pretty much mu- anything else you could imagine when it comes to the world, the wild, wild world of relationships and dating on this uh, audio adventure. So, Please uh, check that out. A uh, new podcast that's launching soon. My friend that was in here last week, Devin Ray Stidham, Diversity in Life, a self-discovery and therapeutic life podcast. It's going to be about overcoming trauma, parenting, conspiracies, religion, morals, and you know pretty much everything about the human condition and experience. Again, hosted by my good friend, Devin Ray Stidham. I'm, I'm really proud of Devin, and he's really dove in deep on this, and I really hope you guys check his show out. Thank you for listening here. Thank you for supporting the show. Peace, love, and trebly, and I'll see you next week.